Welcome, welcome to Table Late Night. We are going to try and, and, and run through all of Chapter 2 tonight in somewhat of a speedy fashion. So I know a lot of you are really, really tired, anxious to get in bed. Not me. I mean, I stay up late all the time, so this is, this is totally normal for me. Um, so, a little context on Mark Chapter 1, which is where we were last week. A lot of, uh, we've been in Mark the last two weeks. A lot has taken place. Jesus comes on the scene um, pretty quickly in Mark. He doesn't waste any time. He jumps right into Jesus, um, jumping into His ministry, and He comes preaching the kingdom of God, um, calling people to repentance. He comes um, calling men to, to follow Him and, and essentially to imitate Him. Um, he, he, he preaches and teaches with authority that no one's heard before. He's able to command unclean spirits, and they obey Him. Um, he's able to seal, heal the sick, um, free the oppressed. And in the midst of all this, crowds are, are now coming to Him. The, the more He tries to keep people quiet, the more news spreads about Him, and, and His popularity grows. And, and crowds are pressing out on Him. And, and Jesus doesn't push anybody away. He, he, he spends due time with the people that come, heals them, frees them from oppression, it says. All these things are happening and, and just pounding on the door. But, but Jesus, in the midst of all this, Jesus um, breaks away and gets up early in the morning and spends some time alone with God in prayer. And... Um, and so last week I talked a little bit about that, and, and I don't know if you've ever had to talk about something you really, really, really love to talk about, and you have like two hours worth of stuff to talk about in 20 minutes, but that was what I felt like last week. And um, th- there's, there's something that I, I feel like I've been thinking about it since all, all week, that I didn't, that I didn't feel like I, sh- I said as well as I could have. And, and the, I threw out this question, why would Jesus want to get away and pray? Like, why would He want to pray? And, and I don't really know if I answered it real well. Because the reality is um, two things. In fact, there are just two verses that I want to point out. One, first one is in Mark 1, verse 11. This is where Jesus begins His ministry. And He says, actually, he, he's, he's baptized, um, and then God speaks. It says, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. And so Jesus goes into, this is a side I know I'm not supposed to do this in the first part, but this is a little devotional moment I had to um, from last week. He goes into his ministry, starts his ministry, knowing and recognizing what God thinks of him and who he is in God's eyes, right? So he goes into ministry this way, and I believe this is huge. I believe this is his perspective. I believe that it's showing that Jesus is um, satisfied in God and in God alone and in knowing who he is. He, He says... In another verse, in John five nineteen and 20, this is what Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For, for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all he, that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. So Jesus is, is, is saying, listen, the Father loves the Son and shows Him Everything that he is doing, and so Jesus, this is this is why Jesus would get up early 
This is why Jesus would spend time alone with God, is because He knew He was loved. He knew who He was in God's eyes, and, and He was satisfied in God alone and didn't need popularity, and He didn't need power to validate who He was or to validate His ministry because He was satisfied in God and God alone. And the end of Mark ends with this summary statement describing how Jesus was going and sp- how, how news about Jesus was spreading and spreading his popularity was growing as, and growing and it leads right into this next section. And so tonight, um, we're not talking about top golf. Tonight we're talking about Jesus specifically in Mark 2, 3 through 6. And here's what you're going to do. Here's a summary of, of what basically uh, what's going to happen in each account. So we're just going to read story by story. Um, uh, of, of Jesus, uh, of, of each of these accounts. And you're, here's, here's what's going to happen. Two things each time. Um, we're going to see Jesus demonstrating life in the kingdom of God, both in word and deed. We're going to see Jesus um, demonstrating what life in the kingdom looks like and is. And that's going to impact several people. And you're also going to see Him confronting lifeless uh, religion. Almost each time, you're going to see him confronting lifeless religion. So both things are going on in each account. I want you to look for them as we read each story. So in other words, Jesus is shown as the messianic king, um, displaying the kingdom of God in him and proclaiming the gospel of God to forgive sins. These are the things that happen. He forgives sins. He heals a paralytic. He transforms a thief. He hangs out with outcasts. He redefines the law, restores brokenness. All the while confronting the religious leaders about their views about authority, about who sinners are, about fasting, about Sabbath, about their hard hearts. So, so both things are happening um, it's really simultaneous in, in these stories. So, let's move on, and I'm going to try something I haven't done before. We'll see how it goes. I'm going to have the Bible app read for us. Um, I know Anthony was dying too, but I, I like to just throw him off guard and have someone else read. So here we go. Follow along. Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. Let's see if this works. Here we go. Chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, Rise, Pick up your bed and go home. 
And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Okay. So, I'm going to walk you through some things that I, walk, that I thought through as I was preparing to study today. So when I, when I try and figure out what, what the author's intended meaning is, this, for those of you who haven't been here, this is kind of our process of interpreting the Bible. We, this is what we want. We want to know what the author's intended meaning is in order to understand kind of the timeless truth. We've got to know the context in order to know the timeless truth in order to apply it today. Um, there, there's a green card over there if you want something to take with you to remind you of this. But whenever I want to know the author's intended meaning, especially about this text, these are some questions I'm asking. How are first century houses different than my concept of a house? Okay? So I need to know, he's talking about this, this group of guys carrying somebody up on a roof and digging a hole, and I need to know what that looks like. Uh, what was it like to be a Pharisee or a scribe back then? That's a question I ask. And what, why was it blasphemy for Jesus to forgive sins? Why were they so upset about that? What's with, this, what's with the speech that Jesus gives here in verses 8 through 11? So these are some questions that came to mind as I was preparing and studying. Um, and so here's kind of what I discovered. Basically here, archaeologists tell us that in, in Capernaum, that the first century houses, now when we think of it, we think of roofs like this, digging through mortar or Latin plaster or you know, some sort of tar or something. Um, it wouldn't have been quite that. Um, it doesn't take away from how difficult of a task this was, but, but we know that, that it would have made, been, been made of cross beams, ma- uh, matting of reeds, branches, dried mud, those types of things. So not as big of a deal to, to, to get through and not as big of a deal to patch as, say, houses that we're used to. But it still doesn't take away from um, the fact that these, that these men um, were dedicated to, to, to getting this guy before Jesus' feet. Notice what it says. When Jesus sees... Does it say he saw his faith? What does it say it says? What does it say he saw? He saw their faith. And then he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. It's kind of interesting. If faith in Mark means more than simple belief. It shows, it shows itself in action. Um, notice also the contrast that Mark is describing. The scribes are sitting. Right? These men are standing on a roof, lowering someone down. And, and, and so right away, Mark is depicting the, diff- the, the contrast of these scribes who are just sitting here questioning everything, trying to trip Jesus, trying to trap Jesus in something that they can accuse him of. And here are these guys um, who love their friend and who have faith that, God, that Jesus can heal, lowering him down. Um, this whole forgiveness thing, only the priests um, can forgive sin. And, and, and here's how they do, they do it through repentance through restitution, through sacrifice. And so there, there was a certain protocol in order for sin to be forgiven. And Jesus just skips all that and basically claims to be able to forgive sins as if He were God. That's why they get so upset. He's, it, this isn't just Jesus going, no, I forgive you. It, it, he, th- this guy didn't do anything to Jesus. He's forgiving Him as, if, as like God forgives. So this is a big deal. He's making a big claim. And see, the Pharisees, here's a little background on them. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot that you can learn about what happened in between Malachi and Matthew to this 400 years where, where these men were kind of commissioned to be guardians of the law. 
Their job was to protect the people from breaking the law. And so they went to great lengths to make sure no one broke the law because they didn't want to go back to um, Exodus, to, back to the things that they were do, sold into and the idolatry they got into. And so they swung the pendulum hard the other way and went towards legalism. And so you see their dilemma. There's a guy coming to claim God, claiming he's God and forgiving sins, and that's a no-no. And so they need to figure out how they can get this guy off the scene. Jesus' speech at the end is really referring to um, uh, verifying a truth of a prophet, a true prophet. So, in other words, back in, the, back in the old days, if a prophet spoke for God and it came true, then he's a true prophet. If a, if a, if a prophet spoke for God and it didn't come true, he's not a true prophet and he needs to die. This is how serious this was. And so Jesus says, oh, you think, it's, you think it's cool that, or you think it's a big deal that I said, forgive him? So if I can heal him, won't I just validate that I can forgive sins? And then Jesus says, get up. And the guy gets up and walks out. And if it was today, Jesus would be like, boom. Drop the mic and walk out. But he didn't. He's way more cool than that. Um, all right, next. Sorry, I should have given you this. This is a kind of a, this is what's happening in, in, in verses 2, sorry, 1 through 12. We see Jesus forgiving sins and confronting views of authority. We see him forgiving sins, recognizing faith, and then, and then confronting views of authority. I'll let you write that down while I get ready for the next section. Confronting views of I'm sorry, forgiving sins and confronting views of authority. All right, so here we go. Mark 2, 18 through 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Okay. Here's some questions I ask when I'm seeking to understand the author's intended meaning of this text. I asked, what was it like to be a tax collector? Um, why were the scribes so upset that he was eating with tax collectors? And then what is it, um, what is it with Jesus' coded message about sickness and physicians and sinners? So, Tax collectors were, were more than just mean IRS agents. They were, actually, um, they were actually Jewish men hired by the Roman government to tax their own people, which ultimately, to, to give back to the Roman government, which was funding the Roman army that was oppressing the Jews. And they were stealing off of the top. So the Romans would say, yeah, tax them this much. And they say, well, we've got to make a living too, so we'll tax even more and we'll take a little cut. Um, and sometimes they would do it without warning. Sometimes they would, I mean, it, so 
these men were seen oftentimes, even the Jewish men seen as scum of the earth, lowest of lows. Tax collectors and sinners, like, oh. And, and so, so Jesus calls, this is what makes this so crazy. Not only does it call poor fishermen and maybe somewhat wealthy fishermen, but also tax collectors. And not, not only does he call him to follow him, but he goes and eats and hangs out with him. And so these religious leaders are appalled at this idea that, that someone who would claim to be God would want to hang out with them. If, if God was going to come here, he would come and hang out with those of us who do the right thing to a T. And we are proud of it. And we announce it. I mean, God would hang out with us. And then to understand what Jesus' message is, you need to look at parallel passages. So if you read this account in Matthew and Mark and Levi, you, you know, there's a couple of things you notice. Um, the first one is Mark and Levi, sorry, Mark and Luke call this man Levi. Matthew calls this man Matthew. So a lot believe that this is actually Matthew that wrote the Gospel of Matthew. We don't have any real way of confirming that, but, but a lot believe that. Matthew doesn't speak of himself in first person. He still speaks in third person in, in, the, in, his, in his account. But it's just kind of interesting. Most believe it is Matthew that wrote the Gospel. The second thing is this, is more importantly, you, you notice that Jesus is addressing the heart. He's saying that, that those who recognize they're sick go and see a doctor. And, and you Pharisees, you scribes, you don't write, these people, these tax collectors and sinners, they recognize they're sick and they recognize their need for me. But, but you don't. And so therefore I came to call them, call sinners to me. Jesus is calling us to recognize our need for Him. Alright, here is this section. We see Jesus loving the outcasts and confront, confronting views of sinners. You see him loving the outcasts and then confronting views of, of sinners. Let's move on to the next story. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, so here's some questions I ask when I'm seeking to understand the author's intended meaning in this text. How is a wedding similar or different than a wedding today? What does Jesus mean by a bridegroom? He seems to like that word. He uses it three times in this little, in like one or two verses. Why was that so important to him? And what is Jesus comparing and contrasting with the old versus new? What's he getting at? So, like today, weddings were a joyous occasion, huge celebration. Um, the kingdom of God, this is what he's saying, the kingdom of God is a joyous occasion, not something, that, not something to fast or mourn about, is, is kind of what he's saying. So, the, the fasting was a part of, of, you know, 
ritual and, and, their, and their way of living out their faith, you could say. And, but Jesus is saying, listen, but that's, you, you fast and mourn for something to come because something isn't right, because you long for something. And Jesus is saying, I'm here, guys. I'm here. So when he uses the word bridegroom, he's, he's claiming to be the Messiah. This is a messianic claim. This is Jesus saying, "Why would you would never fast and mourn um, if the bridegroom was among you and you were celebrating your wedding. The difference between weddings back then and weddings today would be the groom, the bridegroom, was, took more of a center stage, more of a central role than, than the bride. And so you have, um, so, it's, it's, so Jesus, again, this is, a, this is a messianic claim. I love how one, one author um, said, one commentary said, in the presence of such joy, it's not only inappropriate to fast, but it's, it's impossible. In, in the presence of such joy that the, that, the, that the king or that the bridegroom is here, it's impossible to fast. Um, and then lastly, this whole patch and wine skin thing, um, Jesus basically, so you know, you get the picture. If you, if you have an old garment and you have a new patch that hasn't been washed, so when you, if you sew that on, when you wash that, the new patch is going to shrink and it's going to, whatever you're trying to patch, it's going to make it worse, is kind of the idea. When you have, when you have a wine skin, when, when you pour wine into a wine skin, the wine kind of expands the skin to its kind of limits. Um, that's why you can only use it really through that set, through one. And so he's saying if you, if you pour out, if you have an old wine skin, you put new wine in, it's just going to expand more to the point beyond its max and it's going to burst open. So Jesus is saying that he hasn't come to patch up or to modify an old system, but he's come to transform, some, transform it, to, to completely renew it and make it new. So you, you see common themes like born again, like the old is gone. That's what Paul says the old, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Um, if anyone is in Christ, the old has gone, the new has come. And he's here, Jesus is describing the old system cannot, cannot handle this new system. It needs to be brand new, birthed new. So in this, in this section, we see Jesus claiming to be the Messiah and then confronting an old system, an old way of thinking, an old, an old um, way of, of, of viewing the kingdom. So we see him claiming to be the Messiah and then confronting an old system. In this last section, section we're going to read um, all the way through 3.6. Here we go. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3 Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. 
and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Okay, so here's some questions I ask. What, what does the Old Testament say about the Sabbath? What, would, um, what happened in the story of David? And then why would the Pharisees want to kill Jesus because of this? Because he healed somebody. Um, so, in, in, this, in this story, you have two different controversies about the Sabbath. The, the, the disciples plucking grain, um, which is essentially work considered. And then Jesus healing someone. He spoke, and, and this person was healed. So, the Old Testament view of Sabbath is essentially from sun up, or sorry, sundown to sundown, from Friday night to sa- through Saturday, is there is to be no work. It is to be a day given to the Lord, a, a day to honor the Lord and trust the Lord. It's a, and so... Um, there, there's a story in the Old Testament about a guy who's picking up sticks, gathering, gathering sticks and on the Sabbath. And God says, put him to death. He's not honoring my covenant. He's, not, he's, he's making a mockery of my, 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 my commands. He deserves to die. And so, and there's, there's several, I've been blown away, I've been reading through the Bible, there's several instances where the Sabbath is like, it's a big deal to God, and so you see why the Pharisees are going. Listen, hey, we're we're the guard dogs here, like we're to make sure everybody does the right thing, so that we don't go back to the way things were before in Exodus, and and so you see them looking for opportunities. But this story of David is an interesting one. It's it's, it's a rare story um, where God's anointed king eats bread the only priest could eat, and God seems to be okay with it, and. And so Jesus is basically claiming, listen, I get to redefine how this works. And he's, and he's helping them see, you guys, here's what's happening here. Jesus is redefining the law, and then he's confronting hard hearts. He, he's saying, you, you guys have so twisted this law to make it essentially your God. This is something now that you serve the law. And, and he, Jesus is saying, listen, God made the law to serve you, to, to help Help us glorify God, to live holy and set apart for God. Not the other way around. So he says, he answers the question very clearly, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so you see the story in 1 Samuel 21 um, of David eating this, this anointed bread and God seeming to be okay with it. So Jesus is claiming again to be the messianic king, able to redefine the law, and he's saying, I am the new system. I get to de- define what it means um, to live for God. And the Pharisees were so far from God that they, that they couldn't even judge if it was okay to save a life on the Sabbath. That's how hard their hearts were. That's how far they were from what God intended. And Jesus sees their legalism had taken over to, to the point where they had um, lost their heart for God. So, now, um, we're going to take a break, and we're going to see what does this have to do with, with us here today. Take about two minutes.
All right. Aren't you guys glad OSU didn't lose their very first game here right before this? This would have been a real downer event to be doing this right after a huge loss like that. That's right, the word would have lifted us up. All right. I want to get started here. Um, so, so this passage that, um, that we just studied in Mark 2, that little spot right in the middle talking about sewing a new patch of cloth on old cloth and filling old wineskins with new wineskins used to be um, one of the more confusing passages for me. I remember going, first of all, I don't really know what wineskins are. And second, I have no idea what that has to do with anything that Jesus just said before that. Um, and, and the more I actually got to study that and see what Jesus is doing and, and the way Mark put that right in the middle of all these stories about Jesus confronting the Jewish way of thinking, the more I've grown to love that story. It's one of my favorite, uh, I don't know if it's one, I, I could say that about a lot of things. I feel like I'm always saying, this is one of my favorite texts. Um, so, but, but I really do like it a lot. Here's what David Garland, he's a commentator, says about this, and, and Scott kind of alluded to this uh, this quote here, just a second, but he says this about that passage. The point is clear. The new that Jesus brings is incompatible with the old. He has not come to patch up an old system that does not match the revolutionary rule of God. Read Kingdom of God there. He is not simply a reformer of the old, but one who will transform it. And so this is the issue for the Pharisees there. This is the issue that Jesus is describing, is that they had all these perspectives based in their tradition and based in their religiosity, their view of what God and what the kingdom was supposed to be like, what holiness was supposed to be like in the Messiah. And Jesus says you cannot take your own preconceived notions of what God ought to be like and then try and add me onto that. Or more importantly, try to stuff me into that. I won't fit. Me and all that I bring, my kingdom will simply just blow that up. Um, he doesn't come to reform or fix it a little bit. It all has to be done away with. But here's kind of one of the things that I've noticed about um, us, about Christians in general in the 20th and in the 21st century, is it is so easy, hindsight is 2020, right? And it's so easy to look back on the Pharisees as you read the Gospels and go, those poor, stupid Pharisees, right? Like they couldn't see it when it was right in front of their face. The Son of God comes and He's standing right there and they miss Him because they're so caught up in what they think God ought to be like and what they think um, the kingdom ought to be like that they can't see it when, it, when it's standing right in front of them. But, but here's the issue. Um, this is not a Pharisee problem. This is a human being problem. Like this is a sin problem. And it's not just them. This is what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians 4. That the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Says that, that, that there's something at work that Satan and sin are at work to blind people from seeing him. And, and we're going to come back actually to this book, to this section of this book in just a bit. But here's kind of the issue is, is that this is true for all people. 
that, that, that throughout history, the Pharisees were not the last people to get Jesus wrong. It, it kind of worked that way from the point the, the Jews of Jesus' day, they struggled to be able to see Jesus properly because they could not get around their own concepts of what holiness and what the Messiah ought to be like. But the Gentiles actually didn't do a whole lot better in many cases. Paul says that the cross of Christ was actually a stumbling block to both Jews and Gentiles. And, and the Gentiles struggled because they could not see why anyone would worship a crucified Jewish peasant from some backwoods area called Galilee. They could not see why any man who suffered a humiliating death like that would be worthy of worship. They couldn't get around the resurrection. Not in the way that we can't get around it, maybe a little bit. Today people struggle with this idea of anybody coming back from the dead. The Greeks of that day would have struggled with the idea of anybody wanting to come back from the dead. Like the whole goal of life is to get away from this physical body. Why would I want to come back to it? And that just seemed crazy. They could not get around this radically different way that the Christians lived and the way they treated things like sex and the way they treated things like family and the way they treated thing like, things like gods. One of the major rumors about early Christianity amongst the Roman Empire is that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship all the gods that were all around, that everybody else took part in, and so they must not believe in them at all. The Gentiles could not see him properly either. Even the church, the Roman Catholic church in like the 15th and 16th century, could not see him because they could not fathom a God who would offer grace outside of the traditions of the church. Like if you want God, you've got to come through us, you've got to come through confession to the priests and penance paid to the church and, and all of these things and outside of all these traditions and extra little rules that you need to keep, God wouldn't like, reach out to a person outside of those things and so they missed Him, many of them. Uh, our own parents' generation, if you grew up in the Bible Belt, um, then, then I, I believe that a lot of people in the generation before us failed to see Jesus because the God they conceived of was essentially like a white Republican whose main goal was to, to secure the prosperity of America and the safety of the nation of Israel, of course, too. But, but to, to basically push forward our own values of, of oh, I want to say Christian values, but it was kind of like Christian-American values, to push those forward, and, and that's what he's about, and so many of them got so caught up in that that they were unable to see him for who he was, but it's not just them. Our own generation struggles so much to see Jesus as he is because we live in a culture in which the highest values are being nice, to be non-judgmental, to be accepting and loving. And so, like, I can't fathom a God who would not, you know, accept me as I am, a God who would not be, or who would, who would judge me for, for staying true to the person that I am, or, or, you know, I'm a good person, so I can't see. I remember having this conversation with uh, a student a few years ago, like, I cannot fathom uh, a God who would send my uncle, who's a really good guy, who would send my uncle to hell. Like that, I, I don't want any part of that. I can't even see that. And so this becomes the issue for us that, that so many people in our generation struggle to see Jesus for who He is because of these rules. There are 
actually a number of teachers and preachers today um, who are writing books and who are preaching sermons about how we need to know, use language like this, view the Bible through a Jesus lens. That's actually a true statement, and it's poorly used. Like we do actually view the Scripture through Jesus because we believe that all of it is pointing to Him and He stands at the center of it and He's the purpose of it. But that's not exactly what they mean when they say it. What they mean is this, that when Jesus comes, He ushers in a new covenant, a new era of love and of grace and of kindness and of compassion. And so if there's anything you see in the Bible that does not match up with that, you can chuck it out. So that God of the Old Testament who's pouring out wrath on nations who are living in rebellion against Him, including His own people, that, like, that was written by some, some uninformed, ancient, ignorant people who did not conceive of God properly. And Jesus came and He corrected that. Any part that seems judgmental and harsh, maybe speaking about how that that could not be Him. And and we know this, that Jesus is all about love, and He's all about um, joy and human flourishing. So, So Jesus would never stand against two people who love each other and want to be together in a loving relationship, regardless of their gender. That Jesus would never stand against anything like that. And so, if you see anything in the Scripture that looks like that, you're reading it wrong, or it doesn't belong there, because it doesn't match the Jesus lens. Andrew Wilson is a, a pastor in the UK that I, I think you probably reference him a lot. He's, as I like to say, my theological man crush. And uh, so I, I love like everything that he writes, everything that he talks about. And, uh, and he, says, he says that this Jesus lens that a lot of people want to use, are actually, it's actually a Jesus tea strainer. And he's, of course he's British, so he's going to use a tea reference, right? Um, he says it's actually it's not a Jesus lens, it's a Jesus tea strainer in which they strain out everything that does not match up with their concept of Jesus. And the problem, he says, is the real Jesus doesn't even fit through that. That they strain out Jesus himself in trying to do those things, that they're unable to see him. And so they have these old wineskins, and they're saying that if Jesus is real, he's going to have to fit in this, and he doesn't. And he can't. And Jesus says that actually when you try to do that, when you try to take the new and cram it into the old that is your own system, that what actually happens is you lose both. He says it destroys both the wineskin, blowing it up, and you lose the wine as it drips down the ground. You lose when you try to cram both together. You don't get either anymore. You lose both of them. So here's the question. Um, what about you? Like, is it, is it at all possible that you have in your own life, your own old wineskins, your own way of seeing God and of seeing life, and have seen what is good and right in a way that does not allow Jesus himself to even fit in that. In a way that can't... Are there things that you, can, that you cannot possibly conceive of Jesus doing? I'm always nervous anytime somebody says something like, Jesus would never... What? It's, it's not that that can never be true. There, there are things that Jesus would never do. But a lot of times the things we say Jesus would never do don't actually match up with Scripture. Um, Jesus would never be mean to anybody. 
Yeah, tell that to the dude whose table he flipped over in the temple, right? <laughs> like, or tell that to the Syrophoenician woman we'll read about later who he calls a dog. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? But Jesus would never, like, is there any, any possibility that you have a concept of him that does not match the real Jesus and that actually limits your ability to see him as he truly is? That Jesus would never call me to do anything that would make me unhappy. Because what he's about is my happiness and for me to grow in the fullness of who I am. And so it never caused me to do something that might make me unhappy. Is that biblical? That he would never, would never call me to not be true to who I am. Like if this is who I am, and, and you know, God made me and he wants me to be true to myself. I can't be hypocritical. I got to be real. So he would never call me to be something that I'm not. It's actually, that might be sort of true. Really what he calls you to do is die to who you are and then become something new altogether. Or, or here's kind of a, kind of a uh, this is more of a, a cross-generation thing and, and something that's just been handed down as this cliche statement through churches that, that Jesus or God himself will never give me more than I can handle. Um, where actually it seems like it's got no problem giving you more than you can handle. Um, and, and so, and even, even that kind of, well, never mind, I, we don't have time for this rant. Um, so this idea, so, but this is the question, can, can you see him for who he is, or are you trying to cram him into your own preconceived notion of what he, what God ought to be like? You cannot shove new wine into an old wineskin. You can't use Jesus to try and fix that and make that better. The only way this works is for you to allow him to transform that wineskin of yours into a completely new one. To not fix it up, but to do away with it and to bring something new into it. We do that not by really great effort and intentionality and focus. We do that, the Bible seems to indicate, we do that by looking at Him, looking at reality and letting the reality of Jesus and the gospel transform our way of thinking. This is what Paul says. So, so I told you earlier we're going to come back to that reference where he says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see. That's actually in the context of, so that's 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 3, what he's talking about, is actually Jewish people who, who have this veil, he says, over them because they're so caught up in the Old Covenant and in the traditions that they put on it that whenever they're reading the Old Covenant, he says this veil comes over their hearts, comes over their eyes, and they're unable to see him properly. But the, the, the trick is actually to, to, to look dead on at him and to let him shape those things. This is how he says it. For to this day when they, that is the Jews, read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses, that is the law, is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Paul says when we, we actually take the moment to look at him, and, and this is the crazy thing, it's not just this one-time thing where the veil is lifted. That's, that's true. We look at Jesus, and the veil is taken off of our eyes, and the blindness is taken away, but there's some continuing effects of this that he says that the more we gaze at Jesus, the more we are transformed into the likeness of his image, who is the image of God, he says. And so we end up becoming who we were always meant to be, those made into the image of God as we allow our perspectives and our mind and our paradigms about God to be shaped by Him. And as we gaze longly at Him and the Gospel and we let the Spirit do His work in us through that, my hope and prayer for us is that that would be what we get to do this year. Um, That that would be the truth of your life question just for you to ask, is there ever any time in which Jesus is confronting me and the way I see him or the way I live my life? Um, because if not, like if, if you haven't recently kind of felt him convicting you of anything or, or pushing back against you, it means one of two things. Um, you're perfect now, all right? Or like it might not be the real Jesus you're interacting with. Um, and, and, and anyway, I don't, I don't say that in like a freaky way, like, oh no, you never knew him or anything like that. I, I just say that in a like, you may not be seeing him fully. You may not be seeing him properly. And, and the solution is to gaze deeply into this and let the Spirit of God affect and shape us as we do those things. Let me pray for us that that will happen for us as we continue to study Jesus this year. Dear God, I thank you for the gospel. And uh, I thank you that you remove uh, the veil from us. You remove the blindness from us. And uh, Lord, I pray this, that this year that we would look intently at Jesus, that we would look intently at his word, and that we would allow the real Jesus to confront us in our lives and to confront our way of thinking and to shape us. And as we gaze at him, that you would transform us into his likeness and transform us into the image of you that we were meant to be. This is, um, this is something we can't do. This is something human effort doesn't accomplish. This is only your spirit. And so we, we ask for your spirit to do this work in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right. Um, just to let you know, we are actually, for those of you who, who are still interested in signing up in a table group, we do have one more opportunity for you to do that. It takes place, um, we'll, we'll meet right over here in like two minutes, and, and Scott and I will kind of share a couple things with you, um, and, and, and yeah, you can sign up for that if you're interested. So, we, th- we have a few more slots for girls, and we have some more slots for guys, so hopefully we can get you all in. Yes.